We are continuing on through a series in Galatians. So we have seven verses today. That's it. I think we can do it. It always feels whenever you have fewer verses that you're not going to go as long, and then you go longer because you feel like you have fewer verses, and so you take more time. And so we'll see how this goes. going to be in this morning, starting chapter 4 of the book of Galatians, Paul to the Galatians. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Starting in verse 1, it goes like this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that through Jesus we are able to call you, Father, that we now and forever relate to you in a miraculous way. Created in your image, stained by sin, we have been redeemed through Jesus and dwelled by his spirit. We don't belong to sin, we belong to you. Guide us through this passage and teach us about how great you are. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our house and who is in it after school is a guessing game. If you ever played this game, you're familiar with it. The other day, Courtney texted me and she said, uh, this kid's at his friend's house, another kid is at our house, but his brother's at another house. Did you get all that? And I didn't get all that. Uh, we've hit a certain stage where uh, we're regularly interacting with other families, other kids, other parents, and trying to keep up. So I've asked Courtney, I said, hey, just don't, don't ask me if so-and-so could come over, or don't ask me, where. just tell me who's going to be at the house. That's going to go much more smoothly. So now it, I just get updates. These kids are here, these kids are there, these kids are there. And I just go, okay, much much easier. Uh, because generally I just go, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, so I remember one time I was at the house by myself. School had gotten out and the door opens. And I assume it's the kids and it was a neighborhood kid coming in. You open in the fridge or do whatever. And I was like, ah, uh, they'll be here soon. Just walk into the house looking for, uh, looking for my son. So that's kind of what happens now at our stage. And um, honestly... Uh, I love it. I love it. We want, in our family, we want to be a house where people find themselves comfortable. We want to be a house where people will go and uh, feel like they know us and know our kids and uh, feel like they can uh, be safe there, that it's a safe place for them to be. Sometimes it might be an escape from a different family environment. Sometimes it might be um, it might just be they enjoy playing football in the front yard with our friends. And if you look at our front yard, there is a track dug out in the dirt where there is no grass because we play driveway to driveway football across the neighbors. So I hope the neighbors are okay with that. 
The moments do, though, like that, where you have a place that feels like a respite or a place you can just breathe, they become more pronounced if you have a home environment that's stressful. You might have even been one of those kids who's trying to kind of escape a stressful environment by spending time at a friend's house. You guys want to be over there because at least it's quieter or they don't yell or uh, there's food or whatever it might be. So that, that happens when, right, when you're moving from a stressful environment to a less stressful environment, an environment where peace seems to be hard uh, to find in your home, you might then find it more peaceful in others. And again, like this is something I, I'd long to be. I want that to be the case for us. I want that to be the case for you, that when people come to your house, they go, it's nice here. It's nice here. For some reason, it's, it's nice to be here. We don't want this, this to be the case for you or for us just because uh, we want you to be the cool parents um, where they don't, people don't have to call you by your last name or whatever. Oh, no, just call me Hodge. It's fine. You know, like, not just that. I really would long for it to be that way because uh, you know something about being brought into a new family. You know something about hospitality. You know about, something about being invited in to something that wasn't yours. And so you can treat people with a different level of care and love and kindness that you couldn't prior because you know the Lord and you know what he's done for you and you know how he's changed you. You know what it's like to be outside and be brought in. I've used this line before. I don't think I've used it here, but sometimes we look at our homes as... Um, refuges from the world, but I really would prefer you view your home as a refuge for the world, a refuge for people to come and find something that they couldn't find elsewhere, because you know what it's like to have found refuge in the Lord. You know what it's like to be brought in. So today's passage, Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7, is a little shorter, but it has to do with our status with God as children. So up to this point in Galatians, we have seen Paul's emphasis on how faith in Jesus' sacrifice for our sins is what makes us right with God. We say justified. Makes us right. Moves us into a right relationship. We were in a wrong, rebellious relationship, and now we are moving into a right relationship through faith in Jesus. And we've seen how ridiculous it is to try to keep rules to earn God's favor. And Paul... A man who grew up, just think about this, a man who grew up learning, obeying, and teaching the law is now saying, you don't need this. Somebody whose whole life trajectory was set in a certain direction is now preaching that that is not what is needed for salvation. And such a turnaround can be an affront. It can be frustrating and uh, offensive to opponents to the gospel. In this instance, uh, opponents to the gospel in Galatians are the Judaizers, people who are coming in and they're saying, this Jesus stuff is great, but don't forget that you have to keep obeying the law. Don't forget you have to keep operating in a certain way. So today's passage, there's an illustration. The whole passage, all seven verses, is really an illustration of the relationship that we have with God. It comes right after verse 29 of chapter 3, and if you're Christ and you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And that's why he goes, I mean the heir. I kind of come, feel like you're coming into the middle of a conversation as you start chapter 4 because you are. 
illustration is going to show two main things. One is Jesus' status, and then really what we gain as adopted children of God. In the first five verses, we'll see that. Jesus alters our status with God forever. Forever. If you're familiar with the sandlot, like forever. It's an illustration that he's going to use to explain. In fact, all chapter 4 is, is greater illustration as to the foolishness. So he's kind of argued in the first two chapters about what is needed, uh, or what his gospel message being the authority that it is, and how he came about that authority, because it came from God, it's not from man. Uh, it was even, the apostles saw it and said, nothing I can do about it, it's the right message, nothing we should change about it, it is the message that saved, that came from the Lord. Chapter 3, he starts to question them, like, what's going on? Starts to talk about Abraham and how the promise has been coming this whole time. Chapter 4, over the next three weeks, we'll look at three unique ways he's trying to show them that being a child is better than trying to enslave yourself back to law, rule-keeping to gain God's favor. So in these first seven verses, he's just going to go back to the idea of being a child. What happens is we're brought into God's family. Jesus alters our status with God forever. And also, what, uh, what I appreciate about these verses is that when somebody in the Bible, as we're reading it, says, here's what I mean. I'm like, oh, finally. I don't have to guess. So that's what he does here in verse 1. Like when we have some of the parables where Jesus sits with the disciples and he goes, here, let me tell you what the parable means. I'm like, oh, good. That's what Paul says. Verse 1, I mean that the heir, the one who is to receive... As long as that heir is a child, some translations would call, say, a minor, haven't, hasn't achieved the right age, is no different from a slave, one in the household, <clears throat> with uh, different rights, not the same rights as a child or an heir might have. Though he, being the heir, is the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers, people to watch over him or her until the date set by his father. So then he goes, in the same way, look at us. When we were children... We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the first two illustrations, or the first two verses give us this illustration of a minor in the house and someone with the status of a slave. So minor, slave. And it has to do with privileges. So in the house... In the Roman house, you might have uh, different generations, but if you watch household code language, like code language, like in Colossians, they're going to talk to uh, fathers, mothers, children, slaves, masters, like all these relationships that would exist within the home. And so he's using an illustration that they would understand. You have household servants, you have household slaves. I mean, the heir as a child or a minor is no different from the slave in the house, working in the house. Even though this one, the heir, is the owner of everything, he's waiting for his father to allow for him to have what is rightfully his. Allowing for it. So the heir is over here, and the heir, as he's a minor, <clears throat> cannot get what has been promised to him. So he's kind of waiting for it, and it's under guardians until the date set by his father. And this is just talking about something that we all really get. Maybe it's a little lost on us because we don't have uh, often time for going, now you are a fully-fledged member of our household. We don't really have those moments, uh, but many cultures do. A moment of recognition that now everything that was yours, or everything that was ours now belongs to you. Everything that has been promised is yours. So uh, we look at it legally as like 18. 
Or maybe if you're in a house, you look at it as like 16 because you can drive. And there's a certain level of freedom that comes with being able to drive. So I'm almost there, then 18, and there's one level, then 21, and there's another, and you just go like, you know, then 25, and your insurance goes down, and that's really cool. So different levels, but they're often set outside of what we might do. But different cultures have different ways to inaugurate becoming an adult. And just because I thought this one was interesting, you might know the Maui tribe and the Amazon and the bullet ant ritual that they have, but just give me a second. Because this is quite a ritual. So uh, this is just from a website. All, th all this interesting, but, but, but this is what it says. For their manhood ritual, the Maui submerged hundreds of bullet ants. If you don't know what a bullet ant is, it's one of the, the worst things in the world. In a natural sedative, rendering them unconscious, and then they essentially take these woven gloves and they put the bullet ant in so the stinger is facing you, or facing the inside of the glove. And then the ants come alive and they get put on the, these gloves get put on the hands of young men, and they have to keep their hands there for five minutes while they're being stung by one of the worst stings known to man. Take it off, and you have to, in order to become a man, and this, you know, a warrior, you have to do that 20 times. Yeah, 20 times. So kids in the back, my kids, not doing that to you. But you act up. Yeah. And I just go, it's just crazy. It's crazy. But what's not crazy is that many cultures do have ceremonies or dates set where you become something. And that's what he's saying. In this house, the Roman house, you do not have authority as a minor until, right, something happens. If you're in this tribe, until the 20th time that you do this, and then you are fully in. The date set by the father, as Paul is telling us, is that the father declares, or the group declares, when someone has achieved it. Until then, you don't have rights. You just have what you think will be, what is said will be. But then in verse 3, 4, and 5, he explains what he means. In the same way, when we were children, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, when the fullness of time comes, though, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So they were children, Paul says, minors without awareness of what the Father was doing. And they were enslaved. We were enslaved in the same way. When we were children, we were enslaved, the elementary principles of the world. Now, uh, I just want you to pay attention to this idea, because you see it in verse 3. Use the phrase we also. The fullness of time has come. God redeemed us. And then he goes to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive. So he goes, we, us, we. And he goes back and forth with his person in his language. So who's the we of verse 3? Is we me? Is we us? Is we them? You might not think that matters, but it does matter for how we look at the rest of these verses. Kind of two ways you could go. Is it just everyone, Jew and Gentile, everyone combined? Is it just those who are Jewish? 
The difference does change the interpretation a little bit of subsequent verses. It doesn't change your salvation. It doesn't change what is true about salvation by grace. But think about it this way. You've got to think about Paul's argument, and this is going to be important for just how we think about salvation in general. Okay? Like what has God established from the beginning? If the we he is referring to is Jewish people exclusively, then we see the subsequent verse about being a guardian applying to the law. Right? Then we were all under the we, the Jewish people, were under this guardian until the fullness of time when Christ came and redeemed us. It helps us understand verse 5 with that idea of redeeming under the law because it makes sense to go like most directly applies to the Mosaic law. He's been talking about law versus grace and the law that he was under and now the grace that he's under. Gentiles aren't and weren't under the Mosaic law. Uh, one thing you can think about is when Jonah goes to the Ninevites and he preaches and they convert, they don't start, the Ninevites don't start following the law. And so you can have even Old Testament Gentile faith in God without Gentile law following. It's not a demand for salvation. Then the verses about adoption apply to all of us because he's using, even his argument, Gentiles are brought in through faith. That's how it happens. The promise goes to all. It's also a way to see this passage as inclusive to everybody, Jew and Gentile combined. All of us have an experience of being lost and without hope. We all have an experience of not having God, not knowing God, not walking with God, not following God, and then God saves us. And we were enslaved as systems of this world. We were without Christ. Those who were Jewish were under the law. Those who uh, were Gentile were still in their sin, often religious, but still enslaved to the religious principles that they were following and they were looking at. They did not save. So you have we for Jew-Gentile combined, or we, Paul calling, really Jews, but all of us experience this, but in his argument, talking about Jews. So between these two ideas, just Hans's sake, I think the order is important. I look at this as starting exclusive and then bouncing very quickly to everybody. And the reason I say that is because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, and through him the blessing of Abraham goes to everyone through faith, which gives us his spirit. So I look at the enslavement as most specifically the Mosaic Law. But the adoption and the redemption is applied to all. Now, if you look at a verse like Romans 1, 16 and 17, which one of one of our memory verses last year. Yeah, I'll pull back a memory verse from last year, see how we do. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, uh, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, verse to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But you notice what Paul does there. The power of God for salvation for everyone first to the Jew, and also to the Greek. So if you take that Romans way of thinking into Galatians, yeah, to redeem us under the law so that we might all receive adoption. That there's a natural progression. And he doesn't stay there, but there's that natural progression of first here, even Paul's preaching, though he was called to be, right, a, an apostle to the Gentiles, where did he begin? In synagogues. He began preaching to his people and then went from his people to the Gentiles. A lot of his first ministry, though, was synagogue preaching and synagogue persecution, and so he would then leave, and he became known as the apostle to the Gentiles. 
Now, we, whether you're one or the other, and just so you know that Hans's take on that is a minority view. Like, it's not like if you read commentaries, they're generally going to go, oh, it's everybody. But I do think there's a way Paul's thinking here. The way he's moving through, the, through how salvation works, they go, yeah, you have to redeem those under the law so that plus Abraham can go to everyone. Now, what happens as we see that something is changing through the work of Jesus? What happens here? There's a new day. The fullness of time has come. The fullness of time attached to the idea of the Father sets a date. Right? So even children who are heirs are under guardians until a date set by their father. And when the fullness of time had come, you can see how he's making this relationship between a household and what God is doing. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us under the law so that we might receive adoption. It's fun to try to do like the Sudoku on what does the fullness of time mean? You know, like, oh, well, it means this, 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 this. And here's the thing. You don't know what it means except that the Lord saw it proper to bring Jesus into the world when he came into the world. That's what he saw. And you can go, well, look at the Roman world, or look at the language, or look at the roads, and look at this, and look at, you can say all those things, and those can all be true, but you know what there also is? 10 million things you have no idea about as to why that was perfect. So you just go, why was it the fullness of time? Because the Father said it was the fullness of time. In the same way, when does the heir become an heir, right? When does the child in the house become an heir? When the Father says. When the Father says. So in the fullness of time, God sent his Son into the world. The Son of God sent from the Father, incarnate in the flesh, born under the era and reign of the law. And everything is starting to fall into place. The Son changes how everything works. Jesus changes how everything works. So what happens? Well, you see, to redeem us under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. So first, redemption is secured. Jesus coming to the world secures redemption. Everyone under the previous era redeemed through Jesus. Everyone who recognizes the work of Jesus finds their life in him. So what is redemption? And you might go, oh, it's just a buying back. Sure. It is to secure something, to pay for something for oneself. But for the kids in the room, consider redemption in this way. Have you ever gotten money for your birthday or for Christmas? Ever? Yeah. Even adults like, you, <laughs> nudging their parents or something like that. I wish. Um, well, what's one of the first things that you want to do with it? Now, we have spenders and savers in the room. I get it. But in general, when you get money, you start to go, what can I buy? What can I get? What can I have? It is time. I need to buy things. Well, if you live in our house, two things fit the bill of what you would buy when you were given money. Number one, Lego city sets. And number two, candy. That's really it. Money is good for two things in our house, buying Lego sets or candy. It's a pretty fair assessment. And if you come to our house, you will see the fruit of that 
And if you look at our dental bills, you'll also see the result of that. So my kids, when they get this money, have what is needed to secure something is there, assuming that they have saved up enough. And when they walk out of the store with the thing that they have purchased, there's no need in our family for anyone to be concerned because we know they're walking out with what belongs to them. Now, what happens if they walk out of the store with something that they did not purchase? A little different, right? It can be the same person walking out of the same store with the same thing, but the difference is purchased and not purchased. You are not securing something. You're not purchasing something if you don't pay for it. You're stealing it. The scriptures call Satan a thief. He's the thief. He takes what is not his. The Lord purchases for us our salvation. He provides the payment for it. We can stand secure in it. Christ came into this world to redeem us. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of it were sufficient and necessary to change our status from under sin to in him. And it happens through faith. So as a result, we see we receive that second idea, right? So he redeems, number one. Number two, we receive adoption as sons. It's the second benefit of the passage. We're brought into the family of God. Now, it's one thing to walk into a house and to admire it. I'm sure many of you are on the, you know, Houston Realtor site, har.com. You're like, what if? You know, what if? What if we had an unlimited budget? Ooh, nice pictures, nice this, we'll do that. It's one thing to walk into a house and to simply admire it and maybe even wish you'd lived there. But looking isn't the same thing as owning. Admiring isn't the same thing as possessing. Wishing isn't the same thing as having, is it? It's another thing altogether for the owner of the house to say to you, this is yours. This is yours. And that's what God has done for us through Christ. He said to those who have faith in Jesus, this is yours. Everything that is mine is yours. Adoption is a significant theme for Christians, and it exists holy because of what God has done and dependent upon how God has always existed. This is actually pretty interesting. Adoption changes our status, right? We are not sons, not children, then we are children. If you've ever been to uh, a, an adoption, then there's the moment where it becomes real. If you're in this room and you are a foster parent or you have friends who are foster parents and they might have somebody in their house for one, two, three years. But once that moment happens and they get the last name, it changes significantly how everybody feels and how everybody views that family. 
once the moment happens. But I love what theologian Fred Sanders says about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one essence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It says the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are alive and well in Galatians 4, 1 through 7, doing the work of our redemption and our adoption. They are actually all active in these seven verses. If you look at it, you'll see it. We're sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son, Spirit of His Son, that'd be the Holy Spirit, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. But we just saw in the verses prior to that, that it is Jesus who does his work. He's the one born the flesh, born under the law, to redeem and to secure for us our salvation. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all active in creating this new family. Listen to how Fred Sanders puts it. There is still an infinite distinction between who God is in himself and what he freely chooses to do for us. But adoption, adoption, is the mightiest of God's mighty acts of salvation. And without transgressing the line between the divine God and the created us, God does reach across it and establish a relationship more intimate than we could have imagined. In adopting children, God does something that enacts for us and our salvation his eternal being as Father, Son, and Spirit among us. Eternal sonship, that is Jesus, becomes incarnate sonship in the incarnation and brings created sonship, children of God, us through faith, into being. In this case, God does, what God does is who he is. God does for us in adopting us, in creating children. He does what already exists within himself. Father, Son, and Spirit are necessary to create this relationship. <clears throat> but all God is doing is mirroring for us what he already eternally is, Father, Son, and Spirit. What God does is who God is. No different. So we're now sons because of our relationship with Jesus. Our status with God has changed forever. So then the second idea here, verses 6 and 7. And this is a harder one. I mean, I mean, so we can kind of go, okay, adopted, adopted, got it, cool. You know, I can sing songs on it, love it, love it. You know, it's cool to be a child. But I don't think you in this room nor I actually spend a lot of time realizing what it means to be able to call God your father. I don't think it's a big dominant part of how we live. God is our Father. With that kind of access. So I just have this. This is what Paul says here in verses 6 and 7, but I think it's how it would apply to us. Delight in your status as adopted children. Delight enjoy what you have as adopted children in God. Now he's going to tell us again what we have in verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
not a slave, but a son. And he already likened the previous relationship under the law to being a slave because there's, you, can't, you can't receive the inheritance because it comes through faith. <clears throat> the promise that God gave. Now Paul at times will see events or link his events closely together. So sonship and the reception of the Spirit for him go together. Your sons, God has sent his Spirit of his Son into your hearts. It's not as if we become sons and then get the Spirit. We get both. Father sent the Son to redeem us, and the Spirit of Jesus now lives in us and allows for us to cry out to God something that could not happen in our previous state. And he's talking to the Galatians. You are sons. You are sons. We're going to see a couple of times in chapter 4 where he's talking to the Galatians, and he's going, remember, remember who you are. Because what do they want to do? They want to try and act like they're slaves. Their desire is to add to their salvation. Their desire is to act in a different way and to teach others and, and instruct them. And he keeps going back to, remember your sons. Remember your status. <clears throat> now, knowing this, if it changes anything, should change the way we pray. The spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. No longer are we just lifting up our voices and praying randomly to a distant God who's in the clouds somewhere, and you know, if they move just right, we might be able to see him, but generally we can't. But so often, don't we view God as distant? We're not in the house with God. He's, he's over there. He's so far away. He's so obscure. I'm not sure even how to get to him. But that isn't what the adoption illustration gives us, is it? No. Father. He hears us because he's our Father. And the Spirit is crying out in the most familial of terms. And so what joy we should get every time we pray and we get to call God Father. Because the gap between us and him has changed. And it's been changed by Jesus. He's a loving Father. Now, my children, and, and maybe yours, or your grandkids, or your friends, or your neighbor's kids, or your nieces and nephews, they, they have no problem calling my name at any time. Usually not my name, usually Courtney's, but they call my name too. Sometimes they come looking for me. Often they don't. They just assume that if they say my name, Daddy or Dada or Dad or whatever they might say, never harm, be weird. They just say my name. And assuming that my hearing is okay, I respond. I respond. I don't respond based upon the merits of the request. Tell me what you want, and then I'll decide if I want to. I respond because they're my children. I don't respond because I, because I, as a finite person, know what they're going to ask. I don't respond or make them come fill out some checklist that makes me approve of their request. I respond because they are my children. And when we are somewhere, be it the baseball park or at a store or a restaurant or whatever else, 
right? And I hear kids yelling dad or mom all the time. There are three that I respond to. I basically ignore the rest. Unless there's a kid bleeding and crying and they're just screaming for a parent, I will probably help there like a good Samaritan. But in general, if all the kids are healthy and doing fine, I have zero, hear me, zero obligation to respond. None. Everybody in this room, in Christ, God treats you that way. He treats you that way. So often we, we feel as if we're going to God like it's a job application. Man, I really hope that he takes me. I really hope that he makes, I really, really hope that I can get this right. I gotta nail it, because if I get it wrong, he's probably gonna say, get out of here. That isn't the case. And I tell people to pray, I'm like, give them your craziest prayers. There's no better person to go to with a ridiculous prayer than God the Father. Right? Because if, if, if like, you tell me what you're praying, I'm like, that's crazy, bro. Like, don't do that. But God can handle it. He's not Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty. He's like, yes, you know, does everybody just say yes? He is sustaining everything at every time in every way. So from what you feel is the most insignificant need to the most significant need and everything in between, there is no better place into whom to go than God your Father. You don't need to pre-filter your prayers. Allow the Lord to correct it. Allow, as you are reading the scriptures, to go, man, my prayers don't reflect scripture. Okay, adjust them. That's all right. Adjust them. Especially as you're growing, and my kids bring all kinds of stuff up to me. I mean, if I said to them, we could have candy for dinner every night, they'd be like, all right, that's great. As you're growing in the Lord, you don't know what you're bringing before him and how serious it actually is, but bring it before him. Why? Because you can cry out to him at any point, at any time, and in any way. And unlike finite mothers and fathers who might be busy or occupied or can't hear or whatever else, the TV's too loud or listening to music or they're outside or they're mowing, they can't hear what's going on, our Father always hears. He always hears us. If you are adopted and you belong to God, you're an heir of God's, and it is not from your work, because God set the appointed time. And in Jesus, that time has come. We're able to join the family through faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you go, I don't, I don't know the Lord. I would love to call God my Father. Maybe you have a bad earthly father. Maybe your family situation is one that you're trying to, in a sense, escape from. Maybe it doesn't give you an example of what loving and caring household life is like. In God, you can have a father. How? Through faith in Jesus. To remember what he's done, the work that he's done, his death for your sins be brought into a, a right relationship with him. We can join the family through faith. 
And it's not a two or three or four year process like some adoptions might be. Done. Because God is not limited by us. He's not limited by paperwork and lawyers and money and plane travel and everything else. He does it in an instant through faith. I also want to add this. The part of delighting in your status might also be showing the world just how significant that is. What I mean by that is this. There are families in this church who have fostered who have adopted, or intend to do so. And they do not do it just because they think it would be cool to drop a bunch of money and emotional energy and counseling costs on what that takes and what that does to a marriage and to a family. They do it because they have seen what God has done for them. And they look and they go, I don't think there's anything I can do to better illustrate what God has done for me than to do this for someone else. I would ask everybody in this room to consider in what ways you might be able to directly participate in adoption by adopting children, to indirectly participate by funding other people's adoptions, to be a foster respite home so that other foster parents can have a one or two week break and you can care for those kids and then bring them back in, whatever it might be to help that out. Consider consider. Not because you have the emotional energy in the tank or the money in the bank account, but because this is a way. And it's interesting because faith communities do adopt, but Christians adopt at a high rate. Just comparatively, proportionally. They adopt at a high rate. Why? Because they know what it's like to be brought into a home they couldn't have been brought into without someone else moving, without someone else acting. You might not be able to adopt. You can contribute financially to a family that is. You can offer child care to families who are fostering. Maybe you yourself can foster. Whatever it might be, I just go bring it before the Lord. God, might you have this for us? Or in what ways can we help those families who are living out your heart in this way? Don't hear me say in this way that adoption like this is for everyone. But it is for some. It is for some. And it should be, absolutely should be, the business of the church. It should be our concern. Because it is a tangible way to reflect to the world what God has done for us. To bring people into homes. The beauty, though, of God's family, as limited as our immediate families might be, is that there's always room. Always room. And it lasts forever. Forever. Brothers and sisters and family, forever. Now, you might not enjoy your family reunions, But the ones you get with your Heavenly Father, you'll enjoy. To be with your faith family forever. God has made this possible. He has given us this life and this hope. There is no one else. 
And so what do we have to do in these moments but fall before him? And worship him and delight in what he has done for us because we couldn't have done it for ourselves. That's a key point in the whole concept of adoption is that no one can say, I'm adopted without someone else making it so. God makes it so for us through Jesus to belong to his family. The extended family of faith is a beautiful thing. And what we gain together. You can hear the argument echoing all throughout Galatians. Why would you go back to something less significant, less beautiful, less hopeful, that only harms people when you get God as your father? He's your father. Enjoy that. Delight in that. Help others to find that. Because you've been brought in.